0: Welcome to the Bob Harton Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harton.
1: Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do great work, and you can find out more and give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is LifeInNaples.net. We have a terrific show for you today, including special guest Bob Levy. Bob is an author, he's also a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. We'll be talking about uh, last session's Supreme Court decisions as well as what's coming up this coming session. We'll also visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. It is July the 13th, and on this day in 1978, Ford Motor Company chairman Henry Ford II fired Lee Iacocca as Ford's president, ending years of tension between the two men. Born to an immigrant family in Pennsylvania in 1924, Iacocca was hired by Ford as an engineer in 1946, but soon switched to sales, at which he clearly excelled. By 1960, Iacocca had become vice president and general manager of Ford Division, the company's largest marketing arm. He successfully championed the design and development of the sporty, affordable Ford Mustang, an achievement that landed him on the covers of Time and Newsweek magazines in the same week in 1964. In December 1970, Henry Ford II named Iacocca president of Ford, but his brash, unorthodox style soon brought him into conflict with his boss. Henry authorized $1.5 million in company funds for the investigation of Iacocca's business and private life in 1975. Suffering from a heart condition and aware that the time for his retirement was approaching, Ford made it clear that he eventually wanted to turn the company over to his son, Edsel, then 28 years of age. In early 1978, Iacocca was told he would report to another Ford executive, Philip Caldwell, who was named Deputy Chief Executive Officer. In his increasingly public struggle with Ford, Iacocca made an attempt to find support among company's board of directors, giving Ford the excuse to, to, uh, he needed to fire him. As Iacocca later wrote in his best-selling autobiography, Ford called him into the office before, shortly before 3 p.m. on July the thirteenth, nineteen seventy-eight, and let him go, telling him, "Sometimes you just don't like somebody." <laughs> <clears throat> That's what you can do when you own the company. News of the firing shocked the industry, but it soon turned into a boon for Iacocca. The following year, he was hired as president of Chrysler Corporation, which at the time was facing bankruptcy. Iacocca went to the federal government for aid, banking on his belief that the government would not let Chrysler fail for fear of weakening an already slumping economy. The gamble paid off when Congress agreed to bail out Chrysler to the tune of $1.5 billion dollars. Iacocca streamlined the company's operations, focused on producing more fuel-efficient cars, and pursued an aggressive marketing strategy based on his own powerful personality. After showing a small profit in 1981, Chrysler posted record profits of more than $2.4 billion in 1984. By then, a national celebrity, Iacocca retired as chief executive officer of Chrysler in 1992. He died July 2nd. Two thousand nineteen, Lee Iacocca, one of the great salespeople of all time. He was a great, great sales executive as well. While the Florida Democrat Party's annual leadership conference is sponsored by big pharma giant and COVID nineteen vaccine pusher Pfizer, or Pfizer, I should say, the National Pulse uh, pointed out yesterday, taking place July fifteenth through the seventeenth. Just coming up in a couple of days, the event in Gala count Pfizer as one of the lead corporate sponsors in addition to the Democrat campaign lobby group. Act Blue, the prominent payer processor for Democrats and Black Lives Matter, is also a sponsor in addition to the AFL CIO, those uh, union guys. The Leadership Blue event, hosted in Tampa, convenes Democrat candidates for office and Florida Democrat Party officials from across the state for training seminars and meetings. Pfizer's sponsorship appears to pose yet another conflict of interest, you think, given the company's role as a COVID-19 vaccine maker, which still enjoys government protection under the legal challenges over their mRNA therapies. Furthermore, despite obscuring results for its pharmaceutical trials and studies suggesting national, natural immunity confers better protection than COVID 19 vaccination, the company has continued to receive approval on its vaccines and boosters from the Food and Drug Administration. By the way, the Food and Drug Administration just changed its definition of a vaccine. Uh, the reason, of course, is that the current definition didn't, uh, the Pfizer vaccine didn't meet the definition. For a vaccine, so they changed the definition of what a vaccine is to accommodate uh, Pfizer. Meanwhile, Floridian uh, Democrats have re- criticized State Governor Ron DeSantis for failing to implement COVID 19 vaccine mandates for businesses and schools, a policy that directly affects Pfizer profits. A pharmaceutical giant has spent a record-breaking amount on lobbyists through COVID-19, strategically tapping former government employees with ties to Joe Biden to push for authorization of its vaccine. In 2019, the company spent $11 million on lobbying efforts before increasing the total to $13,150,000. In 2019, the company retained 77 lobbyists, before the total grew to a total of 102 lobbyists in 2020, so far in 2021, Pfizer has declared 92 lobbyists. Pfizer has, employees a similar tactic, has employed a similar tactic outside the political sphere as individuals tied to the company hold influential roles within the Media Technology and the World Economic Forum. Earlier this year, Democrats en masse voted against a move that would prohibit the monitoring and persecution of American citizens who refused the vaccine. In October 2021, a Pfizer scientist was caught on hidden camera admitting to the pro- to profiteering off COVID-19. You think? It's so obvious. And uh, we've, we've seen that this vaccine quite frankly, just in, in, to, in summary, it just doesn't work. It doesn't prevent anything uh, because people are getting COVID, especially those that have already been vaccinated are finding they're susceptible to COVID-19. So, but nevertheless, it uh, continues to be an emergency situation, according to the federal government. And consequently, Pfizer gets immunity from any kind of legal actions that people might take as a result of harm from the vaccine. <clears throat> Liberals are very good at chasing rich people out of their states. Elon Musk has gone from California to Texas. Paul Tudor Jones left Connecticut many years ago when he took his business and earnings to Florida. He single-handedly drilled, dripped uh, $40 million revenue hole in the state uh, budget in Hartford. You can almost hear the state lawmakers yell, hey, come on, please come back. Now billionaire Citadel Capital founder Ken Griffin, one of the richest and most philanthropic residents of Illinois, has moved to, where else, Florida. Bloomberg wrote a well-researched story on Griffin, who's 53 years of age and has meant to the life and civic culture of Chicago, Griffin has given more than $600 million to organizations in the Windy City since 1989. His name adorns a hall at the Art Institute of Chicago. The entire Museum of Science and Industry plans to take on the billionaire hedge fund manager's name in 2024. The University of Chicago is the home to the Kenneth C. Griffin Department of Economics. In June, Griffin donated more than $130 million across 40 Chicago organizations, the 40 uh, latest recipients of his donations represent the fabric of Chicago, among them Northwestern Medicine, the Field Museum, and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Griffin has also given $10 million to the Fourth Presbyterian Church, where his children were baptized. The money will help endow meal distribution and other programs. Ken Griffin, who is sometimes portrayed as a greedy Republican hedge fund cat, (laughs) alone paid more than $200 million in taxes in Illinois in each of the last two years. $200 million. Griffin will save hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes by moving from Illinois to Florida. But his main reason for leaving is the crime wave in Chicago. So sad to see class warfare liberals always kill the goose that lays the golden egg. Isn't that the case? Unbelievable. Just chasing people out who, uh, because of their policies. Whenever it's David versus Goliath, we instinctively support the underdog. But what's so disheartening about this story is that the big bad bully in this story is, well, of course, the U.S. government. Biden is strong-arming Hungary to sign on to its cockamamie global minimum tax rate of 15% for multinational corporations. As a member of the European Union, Hungary must give its approval before the EU can impose the new minimum tax. All the more reason for them to say not not no, but, uh, well, heck no. Hungary's no incentive to join this uh, tax cartel. Its corporate tax rate is 9%, is one of the lowest in the world, and they've leveraged this low rate to uh, attract jobs and capital that would be lost under a new minimum tax. It only takes a few holdouts to squash the Janet Yellen tax cartel scheme. How shameful that the land of the free is strong-arming other nations to raise taxes. But the Hungarians are tough and strong-willed, as people, as the Soviets learned during the Cold War. So we hope the Hungarian Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, who in my opinion is a great hero, doesn't cave to the Biden's intimidation tactics. Uh, This is just... uh, That's monopoly is what it is. They're just uh, imposing this 15. If they get everybody to agree on a 15% tax, then nobody can have the edge. And, of course, right now, Orban is saying, we do have the edge. We have a lower tax rate. That'll bring capital to our country. That's the way it should work. Competition. Well, the World Economic Forum, WEF, released a position paper this week that inexorably links two claimed global crises at once, Climate Change and the Decline of democracy. It says fighting the former can save the latter as long as consumers stop burning coal, oil, and gas in exchange for green renewables. I'm not kidding. They really wrote a paper about that. The WEF paper argues for the past 15 years, democracy has been in decline worldwide. Now, what's the reference source for that? Who knows? But to protect and promote freedom, leading democracies must strengthen their economies and safeguard liberty. It goes on to say ignoring progress toward a low-carbon economy could put democracies in great economic peril, not less, while repeating the broader demand of environmental activists for companies to stop investing in fa- fossil fuels. Russell's in, uh, invasion of Ukraine has brought renewed focus on this economic weakness, the uh, WEF says. What's the answer for the U- Europe's, Europe and the U.S.? Pricing the alternatives to green energy out of the market, he says. First, lead democracies should agree to end the underpricing of fossil fuels, which is the principal factor preventing a clean energy transition. The underpricing associated with the producing and burning of coal, oil, and gas amounted to $5.9 trillion in economic costs in 2020. Nearly a quarter of these losses, $1.45 trillion, occurred in the 48 major smaller democracies. The leading democracies of the G20 should collectively commit to phasing out costs and tax breaks for the production and consumption of fossil fuels. They should also phase in more efficient pricing of fossil fuels through taxes of tradable permits to cover the cost of local air pollution, global warming, and other economic damages. The paper goes on to argue that the compliance can and must be enforced. Taxes can be imposed on carbon-intensive imports to reduce the risk of of unfair competition for their domestic industries. Now, who's going to get all these uh, car- carbon taxes and so forth? Who's, <laughs> this, is, this is just utter nonsense. Forcing other economies to uh, reform their underpricing of fossil fuels to avoid the penalties imposed by the policy should also be actively pursued, according to the WEF, uh, with D- D- uh, U.S. President Joe Biden already committed to punishing the fossil fuel industry out of existence. The paper concludes that by delaying a clean energy transition, leading democracies are making their economies more vulnerable through continued reliance on fossil fuels. Collectively acting to foster a green transition is not only good for the climate, but also critical for protecting democracy. This is all pure rubbish. It's just unbelievable. There's no reference to why uh, democracy is in decline. In fact, if anything, we've seen, in many cases, democracy flourish. And by the way, Sri Lanka, good example of expanding into the uh, green economy, getting rid of fossil fuels, getting rid of uh, 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 fertilizer uh, uh, that's carbon-based. What happened? They went bankrupt. I think that's the canary in the coal mine for the rest of the world. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. The website is com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. 4541
0: Welcome back to the Bob Harden show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social's a new refreshing social networking platform. And you can find out more and download the app by visiting the website choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. He's an author. He's also a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us here on the show.
3: Great to be with you, Bob.
1: Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute.
3: We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in D.C. and focused on... Free markets, private property, defending individual rights, and limited governments. C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web.
1: Thank you, Bob. So uh, now that the Supreme Court session is over, I thought it would be interesting to talk about the uh, big cases, many big cases that were uh, uh, discussed and decided in the Supreme Court and what's coming up in the next term. For starters, how does a federal lawsuit wind its way through the Supreme Court decision?
3: Well, it all starts in the U.S. District Court uh, with witnesses and a jury. If if the disputed issues are purely a matter of law and not a matter of fact, then it's possible that the lawyers might argue before a judge without witnesses and without a jury. In any event, the losing party can appeal Mm. to one of 12 regional circuit courts or to the Court of Federal Claims and the appellate court has to take that case. It's usually argued before a three-judge panel and once again the losing party can appeal. That's called a petition for certiorari and this time it's to the Supreme Court which does not have to accept the case. The petitions for certiorari are evaluated, you know, mostly Over the summer by the law clerks, interestingly, about three percent of the of the petitions are granted. So the rest, 97 percent of the petitions for cert at the Supreme Court are declined. Next, there's a written brief and an oral argument. And then the justices meet and they vote on the outcome of the case. If the chief justice is in the majority he'll assign the opinion writing either to himself or to another justice in the majority. Otherwise, the most senior justice in the majority assigns the opinion writing. And when the majority opinion is ready, it circulates throughout chambers, along with any separate opinions by a justice who wants to express concurrence agreement with the decision but maybe for a different reason or who wants to dissent from the majority and then as the opinions circulate there will be numerous drafts sometimes there could be a dozen or more Hmm. controversial cases the justices may change their views while this circulating process is going on or even switch sides yeah so that's that's the framework and we can discuss this terms uh, big cases.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting, Bob. Thank you for that. By the way, does is there uh, can the uh can uh, the people who are appealing a case choose the uh, appellate court uh, that, that they want to go to? As you said there's nine circuit courts uh, or nine uh, appellate jury uh j- judges or areas. So, can they choose which one they want to appeal to?
3: They have some flexibility over the choice of a district court. Yeah. But once they have chosen a district court, and even that flexibility is limited, then <clears throat> the appellate court is dictated by where geographically the district court is located.
1: Interesting. Thank you. So tell us about the big EPA case that's likely to impact, it's a landmark case, quite a few regulatory agencies.
3: Yeah, this was a case that didn't get much uh, headlines until the end, and it's a really important case. The issue there was whether EPA has authority under the Clean Air Act to enact industry-wide reductions of greenhouse gas emissions. The conservatives argued that EPA only has the authority to mandate changes at a particular power plant, which is called inside-the-fence regulation, Hmm. and the court agreed. Uh, Roberts wrote the decision. It was 6-3 along liberal conservative lines. And it said the EPA cannot mandate renewable sources of energy on an industry-wide basis. The Obama and Biden interpretation of the Clean Air Act, said the court, falls under what's called the major questions doctrine. And whenever there's a major question that requires a clear statement from Congress that Congress intended to delegate authority of this breadth and scope to regulate a fundamental sector of the economy. And then the court outlined what factors might be considered in in, in determining whether it's a major question, and those would be the political significance, the economic impact, whether the statute itself is vague and doesn't really grant specific authority to the agency whether the agency's exercise of that authority is unprecedented, whether it's outside the agency's usual area of expertise, whether the agency had requested authority and already been rejected by Congress, and whether the authority ordinarily would come under the domain of state law rather than federal law. Big decision will have major implications for other administrative agencies Frankly, it's about time.
1: Yeah, Bob. I mean, I'm just my imagination. I'm just thinking about the Department of Education, the Department of Energy. You could just think about some of the decisions that are being made by these administrative agencies. That uh, they're going to have their reins pulled in pretty substantially if, in fact, we follow the law.
3: Absolutely, and it's uh, it's uh, the, the Constitution has dictated that for a long time, but the court has. Really ignored the provision of the Constitution that says all legislative power is vested in Congress. It does not say that these administrative agencies can become lawmaking bodies.
1: Well, maybe we'll get the lawmaking going back to the legislator, back to the uh, Congress. So there are two big cases involving vaccine mandates. How'd they turn out?
3: Split decision. The first one involved healthcare workers. That was Biden versus Missouri, uh, consolidated with Becerra versus Louisiana. It was an unsigned opinion, and the court said the mandate for vaccine for health care workers can take temporary effect. It was a 5 4 decision. The uh, Kavanaugh and Roberts joined with the liberals, and they argued that this would be okay because health care costs are paid mostly by Medicare. And by other federal programs hmm. so these health care workers essentially are quasi government workers hmm. the dissent said health and human services overreached congress has no police power to force vaccines on 17 million health care workers so i consider that to be a loss uh, the gain was uh, that the other case involved all private companies with more than 99 employees not just healthcare companies, but all private companies. This was National Federation of Independent Businesses versus Department of Labor. It was another unsigned opinion and the mandate there, the vaccine mandate, was blocked by the court, six three along conservative conservative liberal grounds. And the court said, Look, there's a difference between workplace risk, this was supposed to be OSHA, and the general risk of living in a pandemic. Uh, The Biden mandate is a comprehensive public health measure covering 80 million workers. It is not, said the court, an occupational safety or health standard. So my view of the matter is that, you know, unless there are employment contracts that say otherwise, the executive branch is authorized to mandate vaccination, but only for employees of the executive branch. And that might include the military. OSHA has no statutory authority for a broad private mandate covering all private companies.
1: So that kind of goes back to uh, the EPA decision, too, again, exactly, limiting.
3: Exactly right.
1: Yeah, so interesting, Bob. Bob, leave you again, Chairman of the Cato Institute. I learned so much in this discussion, Bob. I really appreciate your commentary here on the show, and I want our listeners to check out Cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Great to be with you, Bob.
1: Thank you so much, Bob. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Andrew Joppa. He's a professor. He's also author of Josephus of Oz. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: I plan to continue my treatments to enhance my sense of well-being. Don't suffer needlessly with discomfort and pain. Improve your quality of life. See for yourself and make an appointment by visiting the website IamDesignedToHeal.com. That's IamDesignedToHeal.com. Or you can call or text Dr. Alec at 239-322-3817. That's 322-3817. Visit IamDesignedToHeal.com for an amazing, one-of-a-kind, restorative experience. Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional <coughs> New York style theater at its very best, and building a 44,000 square foot performing arts center in downtown Naples. Is going to be absolutely beautiful. You can find out more and get tickets by visiting the website, Gulf Shore Playhouse. Dot org we have with us andrew joppa he's a professor he's also the author of josephus of oz andy thank you so much for joining us here on the show
2: good morning bob
1: good morning Andy. i just wonder if you're catching any of the tucker carlson shows lately i think he's really on fire
2: well that that was my good news story for today let me start out with something else before i get to tucker uh it, this is not a, a a large story, but it's a it's a heartwarming story. I I saw a video of a little leaguer with one arm, born with one arm, who hit a long home run in the little league, and I, it was just particularly emotional. I, you know, as a baseball fan and as somebody who admires uh, somebody who, who gets it done regardless of the op, uh, you know, the obstacles, and to watch this kid hit a long home run with only one arm was just very. Uh, very, very gratifying to me, Bob. So I wanted to mention that. That's all
1: well, thank uh, getting
2: you. back to Tucker. Tucker has been with us, obviously, for many years. And uh, as with any uh, person who takes on controversy, not every word that comes out of his mouth is something we agree with. That's that's a, that's a horrible thing to uh, to to state about anyone. I, I disagree with them sometimes. Of course we do. Yeah. But if you talk about the large amount of what Tucker Carlson brings to the American population, he brings things out that, that are available nowhere else, Bob. And he does so with an intensity and enthusiasm and an amount of research that is just, is just absolutely uh, fantastic. So uh, I think America really, um, th- those people that are thinking Americans uh, must have a, a show a debt of gratitude To Tucker Carlson. So uh, that's my good news today. Uh, His show yesterday on on green energy was absolutely mind-boggling. But before I get into that, let me just see if you have any any comments about where we are right now. Yeah,
1: I totally agree with that. I think when you you listen to his monologue at the beginning of the show, his synthesis of what's going on and how he connects the dots with so much evidence to support it is so fabulous. And uh, did you know that Tucker Carlson's show is the most watched commentary among Democrats aged uh, 25 to 49, I believe it is, (laughs) in the United States.
2: I I had heard that. It must be like a... uh a forbidden pleasure, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> yeah. they, they don't want to admit it to their friends, but that's that's where they migrate if they have any <laughs> any functioning brain left at this point. Tucker Carlson is the place to go.
1: Absolutely. It's so interesting indeed. And his, his uh, comments about Sri Lanka, it's almost making Sri Lanka look like the canary in the coal mine when it comes to what's going on with green energy.
2: Well, I mean, it, you know, we can put it that way, the canary in the coal mine, but I think we're looking at a... a uh, a far larger problem than merely Sri Lanka, where the government has, for all practical purposes, collapsed the farmers uh, in Sri Lanka with the uh, the cost of fertilizers, the uh, the natural fertilizer demand, uh, uh, the, the green energy demands producing that uh, have, in fact, overthrown the government of Sri Lanka. But uh, if we look across uh, Europe, we, we can see there is a, a, a substantial amount of uh, of activity of a comparable nature, we're talking about uh, Italy and we're talking Germany, and the Netherlands. These are these are nations where the farmers are, are in France. The farmer is in active revolt against the uh, the problems that are being imposed on them un- unnecessarily right. uh, by the government. And this just isn't, as you recognize, Bob, I, I know this just isn't a problem affecting the ability of a, of a farmer to make a living. This is affecting the availability of, of food supplies. And as somebody has said, I, I forget who it was, that uh, anarchy is only nine meals away from happening. In other words, once a population is, goes into hunger... Then all bets are off, all restrictions are off. The, the totality of a society changes when it goes into a, uh, a, a mode of, of, of food deprivation. And we're seeing that right now across the European continent. If we go back to the Trump administration, he had, he had long uh, had negative comments about the Merkel chancellorship in, in Germany. And of course, he was attacked by, uh, by the media for that consistently, the, the American progressive left. Everything Donald Trump indicated about the the movements of Merkel, as it pertained to uh, the, uh, the the pipelines, as it pertained to her movement away from uh, from fossil from uh, from coal burning plants and and even nuclear power, and Donald Trump was absolutely spot on as he was in almost every circumstance. So the man had a, a prophetic nature. Uh, Prophetic nature suggests that I'm talking about he was uh, able to predict with like a, a crystal ball type of prophetic nature. That isn't what Donald Trump had. He had a, a wonderful analytic mind. He understood the variables, and he understood the destination of those
3: variables, Bob.
1: Yeah, well, we're talking about taking a theory around green energy, carbon-based fuels being bad for the planet. Now, that's the uh, that's a hypothesis of the entire thing. And major countries are buying in across the globe, and it's very unfortunate. We're seeing what's happened in the, the Netherlands, for example. I mean— the, there, they have one of the most uh, advanced farming uh, uh, programs in any place in the world, and they're not using the fertilizer that's going to bring about the the growth of the uh, of the plants and the and the vegetables and so forth. It's uh, very unfortunate because it's going to end up bankrupting them too.
2: Well, I mean, it's, it's happening. You know, we we could sort of make a case that if there were problems and uh, they are experimenting with ways around those problems, well, that happens. You know. Pr- Uh, Solutions don't always work, but this is not what's going on in Europe. What's going on in Europe was a highly functional system. Uh, it was predicted by many that uh, the euro would become the world currency, that the the economies of of, uh, Europe, led by Germany, would dominate the 21st century. So they had they took this uh, essentially uh, highly functional uh, economic system and they have destroyed it at this point. But whether they can recover um you know that's that's still an open issue perhaps they can uh, maybe the farmer challenges will uh do something to these to these logheads in the in the governmental decision making areas but uh, i'm not optimistic about that Bob.
1: well and the, you know the world economic forum released this position paper recently saying that if we're going to save democracy democracy in decline we need to do something about climate change and we need to reprice energy uh, uh f- for example uh carbon-based fuels, make, make them higher-priced so that we could have phase them out of existence and rely on renewables. This is just absolute nonsense. And where they get the authority to, to, to make these uh, recommendations, it's almost like decisions they're making.
2: I mean, the the absurdity of these renewables can't be uh, can't be overstated. these these renewables are are, are primitive uh, systems that were uh, dysfunctional, even in their own time. Uh, we might as well train a herd of gerbils to run around a treadmill <laughs> to power a generator. I mean, it, that that sounds absurd. but what they are advocating, the elimination of fossil fuels, the most the most important addition to world civilization by far, Fossil fuels, and they want to uh, abandon it uh, to, the, to pursue uh, our a total investment in uh, in renewable energy. This is the probably, Bob, the most destructive thing that's uh, I believe that's ever happened. Let me just uh, back in 1981. I'll just cite this uh, to show you how obvious the problems were uh, predictable at that point. I wrote an essay for the. Uh, for the Gannett newspaper chain, uh, in which I said, uh, the name of the article was Environmental Theology Denigrates Human Need. That was 1981. And I make the point, the difference between a legitimate concern for the environment and the movement called environmentalism lies in the way decisions are made. A healthy, environmentally concerned decision will be based on its impact on the human experience. If an environmental improvement can be made without any cost, obviously it should be made. As soon as the cost is incurred, we must evaluate the benefit to be derived against that cost. So this is 1981. I'm writing uh, in terms of what was going on about global warming at that point in time, uh, the 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 future of where that would take us. Uh, you know, and I'm not. Uh, this is not my area of academic expertise. But for any uh, any reason, mind any reason, mind the destination of this kind of imposition. Uh, on the American uh, uh, systems, the world systems, was obviously going to lead us to where we are in 2022. This is not a surprise, Bob.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Andy. So well said. Uh, So interesting, too. Uh, We're going to take a short break, Andy. Can you stick around? I will be here. All right. We're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Bob Hartman show here on the Bob Hartman Broadcasting Network
1: Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees.
0: show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. We continue the conversation with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining
2: us. Always good to be with you, Bob.
1: You know, Andy, I, I just Understand can't help me. but think if we had uh, President Trump or a like-minded individual in the White House, uh, I think some of this stuff could just be pushed back and go away. I'm not sure he bought into that the uh, global warming and the Green New Deal at all.
2: Not to any great depth, and let me, as long as uh, you introduced the, the great President Donald Trump to the conversation, let me just. Make the point that uh, it's generally stated, of course, in the media and by the left and too many on the right, the rhinos, uh, that Trump's challenge of the, the election in 2020 was a, a, a personal ego thing, that all he was doing was trying to gratify his own, his own ego. Uh, I think if we look at the nature of the man and uh, what, what followed from 2020, I think Donald Trump saw that any nation where they would allow a, an election to be stolen uh, did not portend well for the future, I think Donald Trump understood completely the nature of what would happen if that election was stolen from him, or even if he had lost legitimately. He understood the, the future, and I think we're seeing that written, being written in spades, Bob. I yep. think there, is, there is no doubt in my mind that Trump understood exactly the destination of a Biden administration.
1: I think that's absolutely true. And uh, quite frankly, the uh, this discussion about this, the last election, 2020 election, is not over. I mean, many state houses are continuing to uh, chew on this, and uh, it's grist for the mill. And some state houses are now getting to the point where they want to decertify their electors for the 2020 election.
2: Well, obviously, it's not going to be over overturned. That, that can happen. It won't happen. But on the other hand, uh, and we talked about this before, you and I, on your show. Uh, as we head into the 2022 midterms, I think we have to uh, start to understand the potentiality of of illegality as it pertains to those elections. And if there isn't some uh, some greater action taken twixt now and November. Uh, I think that we 're looking at strong possibilities uh, of of some serious um, uh, illegalities taking place in those elections and i i 'm not predicting any outcomes as a as a derivative of that illegality, uh, but I think uh, i, I don 't sense uh, the the awareness or the intensity to an awareness uh, to prevent that from happening so i'm i'm very concerned, particularly as it pertains. Uh, pertains to the Senate races with with so many Republican seats being open in this particular midterm. Bubble.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. And you want to turn our focus to uh, what's happened with regard to the COVID-19 and the uh, lockdown of schools. And we're seeing, I think, an appearance of a, a diminished intelligence on the part of some of our school children and diminished uh, uh, awareness and in, in many ways of uh, social interaction. I just wonder if you had any comments on that.
2: Well, uh, yeah, one of my favorite uh, books um, in terms of this topic, at least, Bob, was a book uh, published in 2018 called uh, At Our Wits End. And it really was describing the, uh, the general uh, decline of, of average intelligence, not just in America, uh, but, but worldwide. Uh, If we look at, for example, the the definition of general intelligence, uh, it says this is the most commonly accepted. A very general mental capability that, among other things, involves the ability to reason, plan, solve problems, think abstractly, comprehend complex ideas, learn quickly and learn from experience. Uh, I think anyone who looks at the progressive left and believes that any of those attributes... Are being demonstrated in the in the progressive left. I, I think has to uh, evaluate their own level of intelligence. Uh, certainly, there's been uh, been a substantial decline in the uh, in the positions uh, filling our bureaucracies. Uh, I don't want to name names, but certainly I could. Uh, we're looking at a a a Biden administration. And I, the word incompetence is another word to, I believe, reflect a lack of intelligence, general intelligence, as I've just defined it. So I think we're looking at a, a major problem that, uh, that goes back to even the, the area of, uh, if you remember the, the movie uh, Idiocracy, that was 20 years ago or so. And Idiocracy, this movie, certainly a, a, a satire, described the decline of intelligence leading to the total collapse of a society. Uh, That was satire at that point. If they made Idiocracy Today, Bob, it would be a documentary.
3: (laughs) I
1: think that's absolutely true. Well, by the way, it just reminds me that, uh, you know, we think about the ineptness of this administration and what's going on. Uh, You know, what I've concluded personally is that all of this is on purpose. I think uh, Joe Biden is upset with the fact that he's doing what he intends to do with the green energy, with the education, with everything that we're talking about. The problem that he has is he's just upset that American the American people aren't buying into it and supporting it.
2: Well, I certainly I agree with that, presuming that Biden is the author of his own thoughts, which is in serious (laughs) doubt, you know. But let's presume that he is, and then I totally I totally uh, agree with you. And if we're looking at the inability to learn from experience as one of the characteristics of of general intelligence, who more so than a Joe Biden uh, is in that category, as he constantly replicates previous uh, directions that have proven to be disastrous. Yeah. And yet he goes uh, more deeply into these, into these areas. Uh, if we look at the, the leading demographic, and I think this is telling as far as I'm concerned, the leading demographic uh, is in support of the Democrat Party is women with a postgraduate degree, 54 to 29% support ratio for the Democrat party. That is by far their largest demographic. Now, let me make a point without categorically insulting anybody, uh, but I think that, that young women in this country are in fact, are, are the most serious on the downtrend in terms of, of intelligence. I think if we add into that the postgraduate degree, I think we can see that, uh, that I think declining intelligence factor factor being coupled with uh, a a deeper immersion in the the elite college uh, educational system, Bob. I'm not expecting you to agree with me about this by the way, but I think that at that point can be made, and I believe it should be made. We're looking at the uh, the percentage of millennials that favor the progressives. How could they possibly do that, Bob? We're looking at a failure in every sphere of American life, and yet millennials are supporting the, uh, the progressive left. The only group demographically that in large numbers supports, uh, supports the Republicans is the 69-plus group with, uh, that they call the silent generation. Every other generation, to some degree, is supporting the progressive left, Bob.
1: That is such an interesting observation. Of course, that now there's a lot of polling that suggests that they don't support. Uh, they feel that the country is going in the wrong direction. But you're talking about a subset of ideas, which is uh, some of the ideas that are being promoted by the left. Uh, very interesting uh, conclusion. Andy, want to take another break? Can you stick around?
2: I'll certainly be here. But- All right.
1: We're going to have more here on The Bob Harden Show on The Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your
1: host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, providing programs and policies to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. We continue the conversation with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Always good to be
1: here, Bob. And you just one before we move on any, any other comments about general intelligence.
2: Well, uh, getting back to uh, to Tucker Carlson a bit, he uh, he brought up uh, Jill Biden, and in terms of her comment uh, that Hispanics are are, are like uh, they have the variety of breakfast tacos, which is you know yeah. no intelligent person would make that comment. It just it, you just wouldn't do it. You know, I don't care what your inner thoughts are, your inner world. To make that comment is just a lack of intelligence. Uh, You know, some of the uh, he also introduced some of her uh, her writing from uh, from her doctorate thesis. uh, Just, you know, absurd. in it's it's I think there was one where he pointed out where she had three quarters. Of, of it was one thing, a quarter was something else, yeah. and then she went on to add other groups yeah. beyond the hundred percent so I mean just that kind of failure in a doctorate thesis is just uh, i've monitored these i've i've uh, i've doctored these, and these type of uh, things should just never never happen in a doctorate thesis, but in jill biden 's case uh, they did uh so this this area I just want to uh, emphasize that uh General intelligence is intelligence, in my estimation. Having taught this area or in this area for, uh, for many, many years, what I've seen introduced over the last, uh, I'm gonna say the last 20 years is a concept called multiple intelligences. Multiple intelligences that general intelligence that I described before, Bob—isn't everything. There are other kinds of intelligences you can have, and I would say that—and I've said this to my class—that the reason this has been done is to make people without general intelligence feel that they have a a competitive type of intelligence. For example, there's uh, there's musical intelligence, right. discerning sounds and their pitch. You have body kinesthetic uh, intelligence, knowing where your body is in space. You have um, um, linguistic intelligence, uh, choosing the right words. And I to point out something about linguistic intelligence. I think we too often confuse good writing with good thinking. And so, I mean, I always uh, tell my readers or my classes, just because you think I write well or speak well, Please don't let that become a validation for the quality of those thoughts. And I think what we've done, if you look at a Mareen Dowd or some of these other Peggy Noonan, these, these are functional idiots, Bob. I mean really I'm sorry <laughs> to be so direct. But these people, they write extremely well. But their 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 ability to think is extremely delimited by, uh, by their own lack of general intelligence. So uh, I just wanted to point out there is one intelligence, general intelligence, Bob.
1: Yeah, it's such an interesting point. Although there are savants, and I must say that it's so interesting to see a little five-year-old kid sit down and play Mozart. It's just unbelievable. So that is a special type of intelligence indeed, probably has general intelligence as well.
2: Well the savants have always existed. There's a story that's told often about you know back in the time of Isaac Newton he would sit down and uh, def- and, and uh, define the laws of physics. Today, the corresponding Isaac Newton works in a corporation's deve- corporation develops an app and puts it into a, a slideshow. Yeah. So he, what, what the point that was that's made in that kind of comment is is that even when there is great intelligence, it is lost. It is lost in terms of how it is applied, Bob. So uh, I think that is something that we're seeing uh, uh, constantly. Intelligent people applying themselves in areas of limited or no value,
1: Bob. Well, you know, making that definition, I think it's important then to think what are the implications for public education. And I think, quite frankly, it's it's classical education uh, to teach kids how to think as opposed to giving them ideas about critical race theory and some of the other things
2: that are going on in public schools? Well, again, these things just just reek of of, of no intelligence. No intelligence could support or advocate uh, for the teaching of critical race theory or or, or some of the other sexual identity things. You know, whether or not you agree with them or disagree with them, no intelligent person would advocate for their implementation in the public schools. So I think what we're seeing across the board, and certainly you see it with characters like Ocasio-Cortez, I think you see it frequently enough with Mayor. You see it with Elena Kagan. Uh, you see it with so many in the in, in the Biden administration. Uh, I I I am waiting with uh, negative potentials uh, for the rulings of Ketanji Brown Jackson. I, I, I and I'm looking at the uh, uh, the press secretary. Uh, it just seems to be totally unable to sink in a critical manner. So uh, this is a serious problem for America. The number of people that buy into it, I think. Uh, it's just a multiplier effect, and I think if we can't escape from this, then we're going to be back, not back into, but we will be fulfilling idiocracy maybe in spades, Bob.
1: Very well said, Andy. Yeah, I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Andrew Joppa, again, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Josephus of Oz, very off off topic for today's discussion, but such an interesting uh, book, Josephus of Oz by Andrew Joppa. Andy, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: You and I, Bob, just try to think together. That's Let,
1: what we, yes, we do, with some general intelligence. Thank you, Andy. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. We've got great guests uh, for tomorrow's show, including Keith Law, co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. Seaton Motley is the uh, uh, founder and president of Less Government, former mayor of Naples, Bill Barnett. Always appreciate his very candid commentary on what's happening locally. And Kelly Apfel, who uh, uses the uh, organization that uses aquatics to help uh, disadvantaged kids. Uh, very interesting story. We'll look forward to visit with Kelly as well. Always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. bobharden at com And... Always, if you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate your pass the word on to your friends and neighbors. Uh, this, of uh, course, effort is uh, supported by advertisers, and I'm sure they would appreciate that as well. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.